welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, our hosts will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their business to success in the ever-competitive business climate. Welcome to another edition of Inside the Firm. This is the Monday morning edition. I'm your host, Alex Gore. I am joined by Bayless Ward of Bozeman, Montana, and he has been an architect since 2005. He's volunteered and focused on the ARE. He was in, inaugurated as the NCARB president and then chairman of the board in 2022. As a principal and founder of Bayless Architects, PC, he possesses a wide range of experience and a strong sense of creative design. Bayless, welcome inside the firm. How is it going? Oh, it's going great. Thanks, Alex, for this opportunity. Um, I appreciate you giving me the nice little bio and making me younger than I am. I actually got licensed back in 93, so I'm I'm even older than you thought. 93. Lance, don't cut that. Leave that in. <laughs> Question. I'm going to learn something during this. What is P PC? After uh, it's your professional corporation. Oh, okay. So instead of an LLC or, I mean, we're an S corp, but yep. architects you can have in Montana, you can be a professional corporation. It's just the way that we have structured the uh, organization back 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, tell me about if you were licensed in 1993, um, mm -hmm. Actually, what was some memories from uh, or lessons from a firm that you were at that you took into making your own firm? Because that's where I want to transition to. Okay, uh, that's a great question. I started out, um, well, I, I transferred from Indianapolis, Indiana to Bozeman. I came to architecture school in Bozeman. Uh, it was it was one of the a very highly rated accredited program, at which it's got a, it's very significant to make sure that schools are accredited if you're going to become an architect otherwise it's going to cost you more time but um i made the transition out here it was at the time it was a five-year school and i started doing the process going to summer school getting out earlier uh you know than the five years i actually got out a, a quarter early by going to summer school but during my five-year um, stint at Montana State, we had a internship program. So you could take some time off and go to work for a firm and get some experience. And that was something that I took advantage of. And I ended up going down to Florida to a firm called RTKL. They, oh, I know the them. Were like the second largest firm. Yeah, they're huge. They were the second largest firm in the country at the time. And they had an office in Fort Lauderdale. And MSU had a very good reputation of students and work ethic and things like that. And I was older too. I stayed out almost four years before I went to school. So I was even older than the than my classmates, but uh, I went down there in a, uh, in the, for the internship position or apprentice position, they kind of use that term interchangeably. And I ended up staying for six months because I did my, my three months and I ended up doing another summer uh, tagged onto it. And then before I left, they offered me a full-time position. So I was pretty fortunate that I got to come back and do my thesis and I already had a full-time job waiting for me. Okay. But uh, the the benefit of RTKL is the projects were huge. So it gave us, uh, you know, all of the other individuals that were there, there were 23 people at the time, gave us some great experience on big projects. And 
how, I mean, just how the scope of projects is so much different than what most architects will deal with. So it was a wonderful experience. Um, I was there um, for about a year and a half total after I graduated and I decided to come back to Montana. So I, I came back and had another little stint out of state for a little bit, get some more experience, did uh, medical facilities in Colorado. But um, I was then just uh, open up my own practice here in Bozeman. Why, um, why did you enter college late? Why were you one of the? I was trying to grow up. I was drag racing. What, Come on, yeah. I got my priorities. Was your gap year four years? <laughs> Is that... It was. Uh, I yeah. I, I had a hard time growing up, and I I still do. So you know, but it's. Uh, I had to work and save some money, and I ended up coming out to school then and paying for uh, almost all of my school myself. So. It was well worth it, you know. It made made me a little more focused. Yeah, absolutely. When you got to pay for things yourself, you you don't want to oh. send those big checks any anytime. Um, when what made you decide to start your own firm? What was the nexus point of that? I wanted to have the ability to do what I wanted to do, and in architecture. I've always had kind of a, a uh, an appreciation for the art side. I mean, architecture is art and science, right? So it's kind of the blend. And when I worked for firms, I was on some great projects. I had some wonderful experiences, but I had the ability to learn what I didn't want to do. So I, I made a point of trying to learn as much as I could, good yeah. and bad. And then I just kept kind of a little mental diary of what I what I don't want to do. And so the only way you can do that is have your own firm. So when I opened up my own firm, I knew what projects or what project types I didn't want to do. And the rest of it is all on my shoulders. I got to be able to uh, work on, you know, some great projects and, and the range is all over. I mean, we do. Currently, we do very high-end residential, multifamily, corporate headquarters, ranches. Uh, right now, I'm well. I was currently licensed in ten states. I've done a project over in London. So you just never know what you know what's going to come about when the phone rings. You don't know if you're going to have a project, you know, in in Montana or uh, Friday before I left town. I had a client that we did a project for in Montana, and she's like, "I really want you to do a project for me in Mississippi." So I said we'd do it, and I got to get a hold of NCARB and get my license in, in Mississippi with the reciprocity that we have. So it really, it, it's a very, uh, you know, it's something that I never, ever thought I would need a license in another state. Being in Montana, I'm, I've got my niche, and that's something I tell students and candidates and, you know, newly licensed individuals, you never know what's going to happen. So get your license, get your certificate with NCARB, because you know, the phone might ring and someone wants you to do a project in another state. I get to call in a few days. I have my license in that state. So that's that's been a big benefit of NCARB for me personally. Plus, you know, we've been able to do a lot of other things over the years. Yeah, I was going to make a joke about you getting that reciprocity easy because you're the president. But <laughs> it's but they're actually pretty efficient at it. Um, <sighs> it's not that big of a, a deal. It's pretty no. well worked out. 
Yeah, it used to be a very long, drawn-out process, yep. and uh, we have made tremendous gains with the technology. And seriously, I, I had to get a license in Texas. I think it took me a day and a half. Yeah, I would say probably a caveat is California and maybe New York. Um, well, those two states don't exist. We don't we don't recognize those two states. I agree. I agree. <laughs> I agree a hundred percent. One interesting you said is uh, well, it's not that you said it's because I looked at your website. You said architecture is an art and science, and I noticed that you still have a bunch of sketches up, and they're great sketches. Um, uh, so you'll have pictures of finished projects and your sketches. Can you talk about how you in your firm implement the art and science of architecture? Sure. Um, okay. If we, if we go all the way back to when I started my firm, I've always drawn by hand and I had to get in, I had to make the jump into computers. It's just, it's a tool. It's, it's just like a pencil. The pencil is a tool. Um, you know, for so many years we did hand drawings. Mylar, ink with Mylar. And that has been kind of replaced with computers. The, the software I started with was not one that is highly recognizable uh, uh, in today's world because everybody wants to use Revit. And that is, it's a BIM modeling software. And we utilize that. Now, if you were to watch me work on the computer now with Revit, you would you you would bust your gut it is like um it, it's not it's it's not a pretty sight i am the most inefficient uh i get upset with it i hate it so i still draw by hand i still have bum wad tracing paper you know and markers and i still do everything by hand and i draw it you know, I'll do overlays at times, but then I, I give it to, you know, the, the, everybody else in the office and, and these, they're amazing when it comes to Revit and what they can do and the 3d modeling and the photorealistic renderings we do and fly throughs and animations. So it's a tool, but Bayless is not yeah very good when it comes to computers. So you, I, I own that. You're, you're teasing me about my shirt. I, I didn't even, mention, I teach at CU. That's one of the oh. side gigs and I teach Revit. So I, I'm figuring oh. you'd be a bad student in my class. Oh, no, I, would no. I wouldn't even be you. a student. You'd, you'd ask me to get the heck out of there before. <laughs> you're going to have to leave. Um, uh, is there any projects? And you know what? I, I can share my screen uh, just because if you wanted me to go to. Oops. There we go. Uh, this house is is uh, is pretty pretty beautiful. Um, any any projects that you've recently uh, done, or maybe in the past, where you've learned a, a lesson on uh, either a, a war wound or or a, a happy uh, lesson that you learned? Yeah, I mean, the way I look at it, uh, over the last thirty years, I actually learned something from every project we do. I mean, we try to do everything different. I don't uh, try to do a set style. Um, I try to really listen to what the client wants, draw the information out from a client. I mean, we have, oh my gosh, we've done, you know, historic uh, preservation work has been a lot of fun. We did one in downtown Bozeman. And when I was in there uh, with the historic preservation officer, he was telling me that Robert Redford was in there a few weeks before we got in there because he was taking wire out of this for a movie set. 
you know? So we got to come in here and see the structure that was going all the way back to the late 1800s and how it's been changed through time. And um, it's it's really quite fascinating. You know, they're, they're taking uh, samples off the walls for different materials and different wallpaper to kind of uh, do a, a very beautiful chronological order of what's happened in this facility. So that's, that's kind of fun on the historic preservation work. Um, you know, the residential work that we've been able to do, it's, I, I guess the biggest takeaway from all of the work is that I try to listen to the client because no, I have never had the same client twice as far as needs. We've had a lot of repeat clients, you know, and but it's different projects. Like I did a, a ranch for a, a client in Texas. He sold that, moved to Wyoming because of his allergies. And he goes, I want to do another ranch. Come down here and do this for me. So we have to do something completely different. So that's what's fun. Same client, different program, different site, different site constraints. You know, and that is exciting to me. So I like the versatility of projects. I think I told you I used to do medical facilities and it became very boring to me because it is a module. It's all about efficiency. How many steps does a doctor take to go to an exam room? And then how many exam rooms do you have? And how many steps does it go back to the nursing station? Then you kind of flip, mirror, rotate. Yep. And that's, that's your building. Now you try to put a skin around it and make it look good. You know, so form and function, uh, you know, you always hear people talking about that. I think that function really does have to work to be good architecture. And then, you know, the, you, you can make, you can design things to look good and be, uh, I think you have to be very respectful of who sees a building from the outside, because it's going to be here a hell of a lot longer than I'm going to be here you know, these structures. And so I want to be sympathetic to site conditions and things like that. So we, I kind of take into that on every project and everything's different, you know, and being able to do projects throughout the different parts of the country, or like when I did over in, in England, it's so different that you've got a whole different kit of parts or criteria you have to design within. So that's, that's what makes my job a lot of fun. So it's never a dull moment. In the beginning, how did you start to get clients? The very first project I had, um, how in the world, I'm trying to think how they got my name, but I went up against, actually, I remember the very first project I had, I was just becoming licensed. So I was a designer and in Montana, you can do residential work uh, without being a licensed architect. It's an exempt and I was going up against two of these very, very, very prominent architects and talking to the client, listening to what they wanted, they ended up selecting me. And one of the architects who I've worked for, he's, he's a fantastic individual. He's 86 years old. We actually have done a lot of joint venture projects. He was actually an instructor of mine in school. Um, I beat him out on it. And, he, and Jonathan used to call me and go, Bayless, uh, when are you coming to work for me? And I was like, what do you mean? No, you go, when are you coming to work for me? I said, Jonathan, I'm not coming to work for you. No, you want, I, I want you to come to work. This project you got, this is a killer project. And it was beautiful. It was a 90 acre site and it was right at the base of the mountains. And it was just so special. And he was so upset that I got the project 
because he wanted to do it as well. And so that was our big joke. But, you know, we, we've remained very good friends throughout the years. And like I said, we still we do some joint venture projects and uh, even to this day. So the projects, everything's different. And you do you just there's some bad things, but very little bad things. You know, the bad things are like the project in London when they really don't have a site plan like we do in the States with meets and bounds and property lines. They, when I did this one, it was 20 years ago and it was literally three steps from the stone, follow the hedge, so many paces, then you come to a clump of trees. That's how they mark their property. And when we were started this project, we left a, a small portion of the wall and their planning board came back and said, oh, we really don't like that. Tear it down and restart it. And I was like, what? So we had to we had to actually remove a bunch of the house and I had to pay for it. So you learn things like that, that you want to make sure everything is as cut and dried as you can, even in countries that were doing things that were a little antiquated. Wow. That, yeah. I hope they're still not like that. <laughs> no, but it's... I don't know because now we just signed the MRA with the UK. A few weeks ago, I was over That's there. It's true. And then, hey, maybe before we get into that, yeah. uh, why did you initially join not just to be a part of NCARB, because you know, basically everyone is, but to start actually working in NCARB? Second question, why did you then continue? Because you had to continue to be where you are now. Yeah, I started um, I started with a professor from the school that I went to, you know, here at Montana State, Tom Wood. He used to be the president of the uh, Board of Architects in Montana. And he asked me to, if I wanted to get involved with NCARB. And I got to tell you, I was a student. I didn't know what NCARB was. So I graduated. I became, you know, licensed. I started going to some meetings, some regional meetings with him. And I tell this story even at NCARB. <laughs> this was uh, 15, 16, 16, 17 years ago is when I got involved with NCARB. And the first meeting I went to, it was three days. It was in Oklahoma City. I came back from that meeting. I said, that was the biggest waste of time I've ever had. Hmm. It, it was, they did nothing. And so then they asked me to get involved in the ARE. So I started drawing the graphic because we used to have graphic questions on the exam. Yeah. And so I was, I was actually for four years, I believe, drawing test questions for the ARE. And I loved it. It was so much fun. And I became more involved. And then, and then that led going from the ARE committee on the examination to other committees, analysis of practice. I mean, you just start becoming involved and then you want to widen out your path and and to see what NCARB does everybody seems to think it's an exam or it's just you know a small little piece of reciprocity this organization is huge I mean it's 130 people it's 38 million dollar a year organization what they do we don't have enough time in a day to go through everything that that they have done things that they're doing. So just by getting involved and it, all these doors started to open and I looked at it as giving back to the profession that's been so good to me and allowing me to do things and live my life because I, I'll tell you, I'll, I never, I never want to stop being an architect, but um, 
giving back to the profession and seeing how they just keep pushing, you know? And so that's the end card part, but I started with the state part with Tom Wood and I was the, I ended up being the president of the state board of architects for almost 14 years. And um, the right side of my head is really sore because it's like beating it against a concrete wall dealing with the state. We, our hands were tied with the state. We in what what were you um, trying to accomplish? Um, generally we or specifically to do things that could help out architectural students, like because we had a lot of money in that group, but it's the state's money, right? But I was saying, how can we spend some of the money that we catch? You know, we we generated from the fees of architects, your your annual um, you know membership dues. How can we help? the younger generation can we take some money and and buy test materials or can we can we do a scholarship for somebody that needs the money and the state would always say nope 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 can't spend it can't spend it you know the state's the state's responsibility is supposed to be to the public's health safety welfare we could not do anything against people that were practicing architecture if they weren't licensed cuz we could only reprimand the profession. So we tried and tried and tried. We um, looked at ways to try to help the profession. And it was it was kind of frustrating, you know, because they wouldn't let us give back to the the younger candidates. I mean, everybody wants, you know, to, to, to try to help them out because it's expensive. I mean, this is an expensive profession to get licensed and it's a long journey so we always try to do things we could we uh you know thought of new ideas and most of the time it just got shut down so it was really frustrating and then we had some issues with um um you know like when an architect needs to have a, a, a stamp on a set of drawings and i fought a lot with the state building official because there were projects that Churches, for example, were getting issued permits and they weren't even done by an architect or an engineer. It was a group of people and it was kind of the good old boy. I call it the wild, wild west. And it was really compromising the health, safety, welfare of the people of Montana. How so, do you feel about residential? Um, because <laughs> that's where you started off. That That's how we started off. Residential, I have... Um, I have mixed feelings because we do residential. Yep. We we're doing a project right now up in the Yellowstone club. Yeah. And I, I know yep. more, I have more steel in a duplex. This duplex is 23, almost 23,000 square feet. And you don't need an architect. We have more moment frames. We have it is a it it's more complex than the office building that I just built, and it's a seventeen thousand square foot, one hundred and five tons of steel office building. This residence is more complex and has more structural implications than this building. And in Montana, you're exempt. So I have a problem. I think they need to look at each project on an individual basis. Because when you get to a level of complexity, I think there needs to um, I, I think there needs to be a mechanism where you have to say, boy, due to this, 
you need a design professional because you need structural engineers. You know, you can't just use the IRC codes and use a prescriptive way to design when they get that complex. So, and, yeah. And the devil's always in the details. And, and I think that's where uh, bureaucratically we get caught up. And this is the frustration with, with a lot of people is it, my opinion is if, if I was a homeowner who wasn't an architect, but let's say in construction, and if I wanted to build my house and knew how to build my house, I think that the state should leave me alone building a normal house that's pretty typical, right? But like you said, there are houses that are 8,000 square feet. I mean, there's how there's houses that I will charge more to do than a eight-unit townhome, like eight units of townhomes, just because it's it's simple where this 6,000 square foot house, you can just imagine now where, how you define that and, and, and uh, you know, cross that line and then how the state or the city does it. And then you get a checklist and sometimes the checklist makes no sense whatsoever, but then they just have to follow the checklist. Then you're banging your head. So it's difficult. So if somehow we could carve out space for what we would say as a homestead versus, you know, uh, an estate or something bigger, I could see that, but I, I would still strongly want to protect what I'm just calling homesteads, which I think people can understand that concept. Oh, definitely. I, I agree hundred percent. I mean, here in Montana, we have residential up to eight, uh, I believe it's eight plex now in agricultural buildings, you know, so those um, are exempt from an architect stamp um, and I think some of those still need to be looked at. You know, I, I I think there needs to be a case by case basis, and that's what the building departments should do, um, because you know I, I don't think we should put an un, you know, a kind of a, a a burden on homeowners saying you have to have an architect like Florida, you have to have an architect to do a residence, and some of them you, you don't you don't need to do that. that that's just that's too much for that's too much, especially for your first, you know, uh, home buyer to sit there and go, oh, you need an architect. That's going to cost you X amount of money. They don't they're not bringing any value to it. You know? And also, too, I agree wholeheartedly. We started in the recession and I will say myself and Lance, we were competent individuals, both in constructions, masters. I was in the army, blah, blah. So the only way we could get work was residential. Yeah. That's the only way we could get work. And now we're a firm of seven. We do a whole bunch of stuff. Um, so absolutely. Um, a little bit of a transition, but why did you want to become president? I got to tell you, I never saw myself as president. Uh, when I was working, volunteering for all these committees, um, I never really, I never said Damn it! I'm gonna I'm gonna be the president of this organization. I just it, it just kind of naturally progressed. And you, it's it's almost like it sucks you in. the The more you give, mm. the more you find out. The more you want to help out. So it's kind of a you know it, it's a uh, no regrets. And it's something that the last few years before I became president you key in on it. it's like yeah you, you see what you can do hopefully you can make a change we have um initiatives that have started you know years before i became president 
that's the beauty about NCARBA. It's it's kind of this continuation of what the board does. Unlike other organizations where the president comes in and says he wants to do something and stirs the pot, he's done, or he or she is done, they're gone. Nothing ever gets done. It's just, you know, they just make a lot of a lot of work for individuals. We have this wonderful continuity because I can honestly say we're not just reacting to what's going on. We are so proactive. We're looking at what's out there. I mean, we're really pushing it. We call it blue sky initiative, blue sky initiatives. And it's something that is a lot of fun, a lot of work. And we're able to kind of, you know, I'm able to work on the back of the past president, Alfred Fadari. He started some things that really kind of get your mind thinking and said, okay, great, let's do this. And how about maybe push, you know, an initiative in this direction. And now John Baker, who will be president behind me in June, he's also doing that. He's taking some of the things that I started and continuing with them. And he's got some new ideas too. So it's a very dynamic group of individuals. And I'm talking everybody, you know, the board of directors, we have 14 people, great, very diverse group, wide range of talents, experiences, and we have some very interesting talks. You know, like the, the big thing right now is licensure. We're, future of licensure. I mean, I look at it as there's got to be some multiple, you know, we call it a multiple path to getting licensed. NCARB's whole mission is get people licensed. So yep. how can we do it? You know, you've heard stories throughout the years that NCARB is always the one who's blocking. We always try to, you know, we make the test in a way that it's difficult to take or we put up barriers. Yeah. And that's so far from the truth. Um, and that's something four years ago I, I really got involved with when the DEI Collaborative, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Collaborative, started talking about some changes they wanted to see and what was happening. And that has kind of morphed into taking down any possible barriers. I mean, if we really want to be inclusive, we got to look at everything, not just what's easy, not a low hanging fruit. We need to push it. So we're doing it. We're looking at a lot of different options and we've got, uh, I've got a task force called the licensure uh, R and D task force. We're looking at different models from different countries. Um, I've got one for competency, you know, when, when you get into, cause you know, NCARB, like I said, it's the regulatory side, as you know, it's not the sexy AIA. Oh, it's all about architecture. We're regulatory. So we don't have all of these members like the AIA. We have 55 members and it is the 50 States and the five territories. We've got Guam, Northern, Northern Marianas, uh, Puerto Rico, U.S. Virgin Islands and the District of Columbia. So we have 55 members. That's all we have. Then we have a group of volunteers that are appointed by the governors. So we have a total of 434 member board members. So this is our group that we get to deal with. And we have to make sure that licensure, which is embedded in all 55 jurisdictions, you know, and talk, they, all of them have to uh, 
well, all the candidates have to take the ARE in all 55. It's in state statutes. So we have a lot of stuff that's been in the works for 103 years that we have to make sure, is it is it worth it? Is it working properly? Do we need to tweak it? How, so it's a very dynamic group, I'll say. And, and I would say that's the most contentious part of, of NCARB is, is the test. And uh, how do you study for them? How do you get them going and all that? So uh, what what are some of the things you're trying to do to help? To help people? And, and uh, let me ask, the pass rates. Now, uh, I talked to the vice president uh, if they stay the same, because I think that maybe they they move uh, a couple years back. And, you know, basically the answer was it wasn't about the pass rate, whether because my question was, are you happy with the pass rate? And it wasn't, hey, that isn't the right question. The question is, you know, are we testing for competence and all that stuff? Right. You must have been talking but, to Jared. <laughs> to who? To Jared. No, it's female. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, oh. Anyways, but I'll ask the same question. Are you happy with the pass rate? What do you think when you see that? Because, um, you know, I, I have doctor friends, lawyer friends and stuff like that and ask them all about it. And it's different. And and I have to go on a little rant just for a little bit because their, their pass rates are higher. But then we need to ask, you know, how much are we studying? How much prep there is? There's some new resources that that uh uh, that uh, NCARB is giving out that that's great. Um, but one thing that I looked up specifically for this, which I thought was interesting, it was on the bar exam. If you aren't a first time pass rate, which is at, let's just say 70%, it can be anywhere from 50 to, to, to 90, right? Depending on what state. And that's how they have it broken down. Right. Sometimes second, if you don't pass it the first time, passing it the second time is like 9%, like passing it at all. So there's a difficulty there because some sure. people's brains might be a little bit different. It might be a Revit test and you're going to fail, you know, oh, um, and, and you're never going to pass. So, yeah. I mean, that comes into play too. So just maybe walk me through thinking about that. Well, the, okay. So you, you, you hit on something that's very important, competency. Mm -hmm. What we're trying to test for is a competent individual that can go out hang it his or her shingle on the wall and practice so for many years what's that what is what is competency there's no real definitive um you know definition of what that is so we have to have that so how do we how do we do it at NCARB? We have our ARE, the exam. Now it's six parts. It's broken up into different different divisions, and it's it's the six parts were derived from the, the practice of uh, analysis, and that was done um, seven eight years ago, I think it was. It was a survey that we went out to all the professionals. Mm -hmm. So we NCARB does this every seven ten years to make sure we're relevant, to make sure that we're staying, uh, to, you know, on top of what's the profession doing? What, what are the needs? What, what are the, um, you know, what, what areas should we be testing? Are we testing on the right stuff? I mean, 10 years ago, Revit, 
it wasn't really, it wasn't, wasn't around much. It was just coming in, right? AutoCAD was going on, but not Revit, not BIM. So you look at how the profession has changed. Well, that was taken into consideration when we had this survey and, and getting input from the practitioners helped kind of change the exam because it went from seven parts to six parts. With that, I, this year, put together a task force it's on competency because we can't measure it. We don't know what it is. How do you say what it is? So this is something that's been going on all year. We've been getting updates and they're testing, again, not just models in the United States or testing models in Europe, all over. And this is going to be something that works with the licensure R&D task force in looking at the multiple paths to architecture. How do we measure competency? What is competency? Right now, I'm, I'm kind of jumping back to the DEI side, inclusivity. We have a lot of people in this profession that will never be licensed, Alex. They don't have yeah. the opportunity, right? And to me, that's not right. We have people that don't have the time. Life gets in the way. All of, I mean, you name it, every possible scenario, and it happens. So how can we break down or open up the door so we don't um, eliminate people from being able to become an architect if that's their dream. So multiple paths to, to licensure. We have the the standard path right now is you have an NAB accredited degree. Yep. You have experience. So you do your AXP, which is 3740 hours. And then you do the ARE, the six parts. Pass that. Get all that done. Now you can be an architect. Well, that's not for everybody. There's people that, uh, you know, can't do that. They, they might be going to community colleges. We've been talking to community colleges now for almost two years. How do we get them involved? They, they offer some great classes, phenomenal classes. Some of them I think could be better than some of these accredited programs. And yeah. I've, I take a lot of flack. People you know, in the academic world, get pissed at me. And it's like, no, we're, if you're going to a school that's supposed to be an architecturally designed, you know, curriculum to be an architect, well, I hope to God you graduate and you know, you have the basic building blocks so you can go out and actually make some money and be productive in an office. Because if we're not productive, right, you have to close the doors. Yep. And the reason so, why that's so factual is because some people at my staff who are practicing their architects have taught at the technical school how to make residential buildings and i've had professors who I, I love all of them they've been out of practice for a long time the guys that taught at the technical school those kids learned how a building gets put together i push all of my employees to get licensed same now that's changed a little bit when i was younger I, I'm building my firm, you know, and I, I can't tell everybody how to do contracts. I can't tell everybody how you go out and get work. How do you secure work? Because they're just going to leave me and go do that. That's competition. Well, age has, has kind of taken over. And now it's, I need to tell these individuals how to do this. They're our future. So this is is going into 
like you said, opening doors up so everybody who even thinks about architecture has the opportunity. And it's something that NCARB is um, very committed. Um, it's interesting because John Baker, who will be president in June, he doesn't have an accredited degree. He never went to school. It's so interesting. I, I, I almost want to put a pin in that because I kind of want to wrap it up with some thoughts for the future. Because right now, I think we can dive into why you're looking into that. Why you're looking into that is because sometimes it's very hard to do questions and even some people just aren't good test takers. So sure. some of the feedback that 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 I, I've gotten, um, I actually liked going from I, I split. I did 4.0 and 5.0 because I knew I was a basically ahead of my firm at that time, um, even while I was doing that. But I knew that I should have knowledge in both so that I could advise people. Sure. Right. <clears throat> I actually love 5.0. Right. Um, what people get upset about at, at the test. And I'm sure this is not news to you. Uh, we have, and uh, someone sent us, they made a book, Practice Registration Exams, and we normally plug it on our podcast. I just forgot it, so I can't remember. It's ARE 5.0. We'll, we'll plug it next podcast, right? Here's a question from them. So it's not from the test, but it's it's a sim in, in the vein of the test, right? So the question is, which of the following would not typically be suggested as a natural cooling strategy? A, stack ventilation, B, evaporative cooler, C, trom wall, or D, uh, tree shade? And I won't put you on the spot unless you want to try to answer it. No, okay. If you want me to answer it, I'll, I'm happy to try. So okay. me, I'll pay attention now. Go ahead and say it again. Okay. Which of the following would not typically be suggested as a natural cooling strategy, all right? Is it A, stack ventilation, B, evaporative cooling, C, trom wall, D, tree shade? Which is not typically suggested as a natural cooling strategy. Well, I would say that a natural would be the trom wall. So you would say that would not be typically. Yeah. Okay. Why? Well, because you would be correct in this question. Okay. From, well, from this mean, person that made the 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 thing. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, I mean, you talk about not typically a natural. Well, a trom wall is primarily used for more heating than cooling. It's like it's what you have with uh, a type of a radiant panel that you use in the sun. So that's where that's where I would say the trauma wall. The rest of them cooling. I mean, you got natural ventilation for stacking because you're using natural, you know, airflow. Heat's going to rise. That's natural. You've got evaporative cooling. Well, that's been used a lot of times when you have, uh, you know, if you're in a hotter climate, you want uh, to cool it. You can use uh, swamp coolers. You can introduce water to an element all of that. And then natural trees, my God, we know what that does. You yep. know, that's wonderful, especially in the time of the year you need it. So the reason I bring up this question, tree shades, we agree with stack ventilation. We agree with for me, it came down between trom wall and evaporative cooling. So in Colorado, we've actually made in multiple of our projects, trom walls. And I know that you say heat, but it actually takes that heat out of the air and stores it, which is a cooling mechanism. So in my firm, we actually are on the cover of Builder Magazine. There's a poster right there, and it has a trom wall in it. 
And what I'm getting at is not arguing about the specific question, but it's me, if I was taking the test, I obviously know what each one of these are and what they do. It's the nature of the question, which was, which is typically not suggested. Where my firm is, and anyone who works at my firm, like, oh, we do trauma walls all the time. It's we suggested. never do evaporative yeah. cooling, which one <laughs> could lead to mold problems. Two, are you talking about the power units that are evaporative cooling? Yeah. So, so it's tricky, and and I I just want to put a pin in that because I think we'll go later to these other um st uh, strategies that that you you guys are formulating your whole team there. Um, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't give, uh, some ideas that I have and, and, sure, and maybe sure. see what you think about it. No, so, I mean, this is something, Alex, that I got to tell you, it's, it's something that NCARB takes really seriously. Um, we don't try to do or, uh, make questions that are tricky or to try to yeah. trip you up because again, our number one mission is get people licensed. We have to maintain this bar of competency, right? Because we got to protect the public health, safety, welfare. But we look at questions and we have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to go in and make sure the exam questions aren't biased. There's no bias. Yep. We go through and on the exams, there's questions. And every question is... Um, is I'll say tracked for how easy is it? How hard is it? We have test questions where you don't get, you know, you, you don't get um, uh, uh, deemed for a wrong answer if we're doing test questions because that is part of how we make sure the questions are fair. So there's there's a lot of things in, in uh, what Jared Zern is the, vice president of the examination and he's amazing what what they do and and how they can look at this uh information and our psychometricians will look at the test questions and make sure that they're clear concise but we're still trying to get the level of competency that you need to know the material yeah with that we've also kind of i'm a segue into how is the test written? Uh, a quick little story. I was in Detroit two years ago at the annual NOMA concert, uh, conference. So it's the National um, Organization of Minority Architects. And I had two individuals and they're saying, well, we got to take the test because we got to figure out what language you're using. And I'm like, what language you're using? Well, yeah, because you say the questions in a way that you try to trick us. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, that's not, that's not what NCARB is doing. We're not trying to trick anybody. And we also did a, a wonderful um, uh, survey with NOMA. It's called Baseline on Belonging. And what this did was we were able to look at pass rates from male, female, white, African-American, Asians. And we're starting to put all this criteria together and this is where we found a huge problem. Mm. Talking to pass rates, we have people from underrepresented groups. They are way below a white male. Why? What have you found? Like, is this, are you in the middle of it? Uh, we, 
we know we're still we're still use, still utilizing this information the survey information and we're on our fourth kind of study can we keep we, it's like we just keep removing a layer of the onion yeah so what we found out was we have a, a huge disproportionate uh pass rate between white males and we'll say underrepresented groups sure. women of underrepresented groups or even more at a disadvantage we'll call it i could go on story after story i talk to people life gets in the way they're going to have a family all of a sudden they can't they're not taking the test costs how much it i mean i've heard people say they spend ten thousand dollars on study material is this a particular difficult in the sense too of let's say life is getting in the way let's say environment all those other factors are contributing but you still have to test for competency so you can't you like it's still life safety welfare yeah and and that might is is that part of the rub not so much the rub it's we were trying to figure out why are they why are the pass rates not as um you know equal to a white male and then thus why? then you're trying to address those and bring those up yeah and so what we found already was that the biggest part is cost of the study material and the um you know the the kind of the time so now times against them costs against them so what we did at ncarb because we used to have uh test material you know practice exam material it was just kind of little snippets of each section last june we finally put out six full length free practice tests so now you can get anybody anybody can go in on NCARB's website and look at these practice exams, take the practice exams. It will give you uh, instantaneous feedback if you've passed it or not. What this has done for people that have taken the practice exams to date since, since June, we have 12 percentage point higher pass rate across the board. Well, I'll Which just you, read some of them off. I think this is the biggest news of this of this whole podcast. It's it's huge because the big one right there, Asians, seven, over seventeen percentage point increase in the pass rates. Same I mean, this, for this black and African Americans. Yeah. Same. I mean, close, very close very for close. Hispanic. But look at all this. So yep. look look where it is for the white guys. Ten percent. So this is something that this wonderful study with noma says we have a huge problem remember we talk about inclusivity you know how do we get people to to be able to to be part of this well this survey has shown we have a problem so ncarb has put in the money and we have taken uh you know a, a lot of funds to do these exams but it's helping tr uh, numbers that are unprecedented. I mean, this is phenomenal, um, you know, increase. And this has been since June of last year. I, I think so this is one, one of the, if anyone is taking, honestly, I learned it in college. Practice exams matter so much. And one of the problems with NCARB was this sort of cloistered, don't talk about our test. You talk about it, we are going to sue you. I know I'm being a little bit general with that comment. But yeah. it and also the practice, the the um, what was on the test was so broad, you'd have to study so broad 
now you have a problem. I think I know the answer to this though. This is great. This 16, 17, 15, 10% pass rate improvement is awesome. You and the next president will not mind then if the pass rates go up 10%. That is of no matter to you. No, no, we have never said, oh my God, we got to keep the pass rates low because we're going to protect the profession. Mm -hmm. That has never been part of it. We have to maintain a level of competency. We have just been able to introduce tools to help individuals take the test, not spend as much money because a lot of them were taking the test and they weren't prepared for it. And so now they get to take these practice exams and to see if they're ready or not. So it's uh, the bottom line. It hurts. It hurts NCARB's budget. But you know what? As the board of directors, we said, it doesn't matter. We're about licensure. It's not about making money. We've got to sit there and we keep the, the fees as low as we can for the candidates. We operate basically the, the exam operates in the red. And yeah. that's because we want to keep the fees as low as possible for the candidates. Yeah. And it's uh, and one other thing I'll just say is about the um you know, the students, when I was in um, Miami a year ago last, uh, it'd be two years ago in August now, I was at a licensed advisor summit. And I'm listening to licensed advisors who are supposed to be helping students, educating students, telling them about the profession, helping graduates to become licensed, this whole network. And I'm listening to what they're talking about and it is outdated information. Some of it's wrong information. And I looked at Mike Armstrong, the CEO, and I said, this is ridiculous. We got we have students in architectural programs that have, they don't even know what accredited program and non-accredited program is. They're not teaching about the profession. I said, we need to get this information out. So we put a, the board of directors allowed us to spend a lot of money to become uh, you know, better advocates and get licensed advisors in the schools, in the, you know, from the state, in firms to help students understand what the profession's about, to get them better prepared. And so they actually have, you know, they can ask the questions and they know because unfortunately there's not a lot of licensed architects that are teaching these students. So we're trying to do everything we possibly can to help the students get better prepared for the profession and hopefully, you know, get it done sooner. Yeah. One, one idea that I think could help in that, um, I think it would be tough to do, but I, I hope I hope you take the suggestion at least seriously. Sure. And and where it's coming from is the questions about um, the AI contract documents and all that. A lot of people, I know because we have people going through it, they say that's the hardest one because it's almost on all of the tests and it's not something that they're doing day to day. And myself, who runs a firm, the amount of time that I'm reviewing the actual contracts, I make the contracts, I do the sale, I enforce the contracts, is still so much, so small compared to the representative that they are on the test. And especially when these, when the students that, they're not students anymore, they're probably in their, uh, going up to their 30s when they're studying and doing these. They're not running firms. So it's very hard for them to to ingrain that and spend so much time on that. Mm -hmm. Now, my idea and suggestion, and I've tested this with actually my own cash, um, 
I think it would not hurt the profession. It would only help the profession be more confident, competent and help the life, safety and welfare if the portion of the questions were open book on the international building codes. Now, I know one of the objections. One of the objections is that the international building codes don't have to be, you know, everyone doesn't have to use them. Not everyone has to use the AIA documents. Right. Our right. firm has our own uh, documents. We do not use the AIA documents. It's of no use to our firms and a lot of residential designers. So to test this, to test this, and, and to go to a lot, one of the hardest things, it's very hard to teach in school too, but you have to in the profession. And you know this because you have a firm. The building code is a huge, huge deal. And they are spending time in it and they need to know how to navigate. They need to know what it means. They need to know how to apply it. Now, I, my firm, we became contractors. So I took the contractor's license B and it's an open book. I mm -hmm. loved it. I was already an architect. I've, um, you know, already practiced in firm. It was so great because it taught me how to navigate extremely efficiently because it was open book. You had like 80 questions and you had to go through and find it. I thought it was so useful to my knowledge where I already thought it was competent. Everyone that passes in my firm, I, I, if you pass right afterwards, take sign up for the contractor's license B test. You sign up for it, I'll pay for it. You pass it, I'll give you $250. Two or three people have done it. They've passed it. They loved it. They said, we wish more questions like this was on there. And we had an open book for these type of questions and less on the contracts. And it and in the in the in the spirit of competency, what what everyone's doing in a firm. And I don't think I need to preach to you about codes and how complicated. And I teach at CU. It's you can't teach codes in college. It is so hard. Maybe I mean maybe you could, but it is difficult. But the amount that that's important and the amount that the IBC I or IBRC, but let's just say IBC, let's say an IRC is actually adopted and is widely used is as much or more as the AIA documents for contracts. So I wonder what your initial feedback is on, on that sort of concept. Um, that's, I mean, I've never, I've never been asked that. Alex. Um, you know, I think, I think it, AIA contracts, contracts in general, are important. You need to know the basics. Um, I think the problem really is it starts back in school in pro practice classes. And and maybe you don't have to take out, maybe it's not like one over the other, but maybe it's yeah. a concept of in introducing this key core competency that we all do and saying, it's okay that we take the IBC. It's okay that we have the book with us. It's not. It's it's not cheating. You can't memorize that whole book. They change it every no, three years. No. You need to yeah, look but, at it when you're at the firm. Yeah, but I mean the the basic. I don't know. In my experience, the basic um, direction for the code. I mean that's minimal life safety issues, and it doesn't change that much every year. I mean they, sure. Right. Hopefully they get smarter. <laughs> Hopefully they get smarter. <laughs> um, but um, I think I, I go back to saying that I think the biggest problem is 
that students are not getting good pro practice in a overarching, not the level of detail where, okay, what is, you know, what, what is con where your B-151 contracts really state? Well, there's a few of them that you're going to use. Mm -hmm. There's a lot that you need to be able to go back. And, and I don't think, well, uh, it's been 30 years since I took the test, but um, I would, I would have to do a little research and see some of that. And, and you actually, it's made it that you've intrigued my, uh, my, my curiosity about to what level do they actually get on contracts? How specific are they, you know, are they, are they going into the, the back pages of it saying, well, what about this? You know, if it's something like your A201s and, you know, your, your general owner architect contracts, things like that, I think those should be known. And I think it's something where from the generalization statement, you should be able to, to know that the, the, the main um, direction and, and what you're trying to achieve with that contract. Sure. Same thing with the building. Codes. You know, and, I don't and, think... and I think maybe they push that way too, you know, and yeah, I, I they, think that's maybe they, where the general sense is. My, my yeah, biggest question I, though is, is on this, I just can't stress how much um, the IBC is important and yeah. it, oh. it has to, um, yeah. and, and I think it should be integrated and I think it could be hard. I think it could take time. Um, but I, I, I do think that though, um, the, here's the switch is because, um, because it's not open book as it is, it, you can't ask a very specific question like, Hey, what does the IBA, uh, IBC state about this? You know, like where you have to give some like very specific number, right? Because that's hard sure. because you know, what are you going to do? You're going to, how are you going to scope that? So people know what to study and what to memorize. Right. But if you had a test or two and the, the, the question could even say IBC resource, and they had to know where to go look, where to go find it. Because we get called, I can't, even today, I'll get an inspector, you, you know, we get um, their, their comments back. I have to open the book and, and, and look and find okay. it. And, and just to have them say, this is a part of your life. It is okay. You should be very competent at knowing what they're asking, where to find, where to go to it. And then I can specifically yeah. ask it. And even if 10 questions out of two exams have a little logo that says, this is where you look in the book, it's going to be pretty specific. Um, yeah. I can't tell you the oh, amount of studying that the people loved about knowing how to navigate that. Yeah. I'll have to look at that. Cause that's, like I said, I haven't taken the, the test forever. You know, when I took it, you know, back in the day when it was still paper and pencil, you know, we had to know the code, you know, we, we, but it was, it was a lot of the, I mean, I remember the design problem I did was a, was a uh, museum two-story space. So, you know, that automatically kicks in some, some uh, very basic um, code requirements that we had to know. Um, and I, I really need to look at that because now you don't have a design, you really don't have a, a design portion of the exam anymore. You know, you've got, you know, some, some, some case studies and things like that. So I'll get back to you on that. Cause I, I will, I, I'm going to look into it a little bit more. I'll, I'll be in DC and two weeks. Awesome. I'll awesome. Talk to um, so. Last question uh, before we wrap it up, um, any initiatives that you're exciting about? You, you talked about and mentioned different paths 
passive licensure. What are you looking yeah, at? What are pass. some of the different ways of doing that? Yeah. Don't know yet. I mean, we're still we're still looking at other uh, looking at all options. Uh, I mean, if you compare again earlier, I said you know our path is NAP accredited school for thirty eight of the uh, jurisdictions. You have your AXP, thirty seven hundred and forty hours, six parts of the exam. NCARB already has path or different paths if you don't have a NAB accredited degree. You know, if you're a foreign architect, there's ways that you can get your license um, by doing different, you know, like two times AXP or you have sure. to do a portfolio, things like that. But if we're looking from the initial path of licensure, I look at there, again, this is my own opinion. This isn't something that NCARB is, you know, they don't like, we're not changing something just because of what I think. God, we know that's not going to happen because I'm probably wrong. But, but um, you know, you look at a path and I see a huge disparity, this kind of a disparity between a lot of students that come out of school and what a, an office needs. We call it mind the gap. There's this big gap. Community colleges. To me, this is this is an area where we can get more of a votech. People say it's a votech type of school, but they might be able to get the basic fundamentals that you need to know. I mean, you know what orthographic projection is. I've got, I had students that graduate from an architectural accredited degree. I had told them to do some orthographic projection. They're like, what? Huh? Orthographic what? I don't, they didn't know what it was. I went back up to school. I'm like, what are you guys doing? So basic fundamentals, I would love to be able to see all of these accredited schools, community colleges have a base set of programs that if you go to a community college and now you're going to transfer into an architectural school, you have an articulation agreement where that credit is the same if you want to transfer to Colorado or if you want to transfer to Montana. If you've taken this class, you get the, the, the same credit. It's not subjective and go, oh, I'll, you know, you had two years. I'll give you a, a, I'll give you two semesters of credit. You're starting down here where another school might give you full credit. So this articulation agreement is something I really would like to see. And I just want to see, are there different ways? And I don't know what the answer is because we haven't sure, yeah. got all the information we're just into it. But that's the idea, um, you know, and just taking whatever barriers we come up against and say, okay, why is this barrier in place? Does it make sense or does it not make sense? And if it doesn't, get rid of the damn thing. Yeah. Let's get it where, where we work for the candidates because- they are the they are the future. We got to keep this thing going, and not it. We're, we're not lowering the bar at all. And that's what pe some people will say. Oh, if you do this, you're going to lower the bar. I, I agree with you, and, and and that's why I brought up the book is because I know in the test because I remember 5.0. Um, they had some code in the back, and when I was talking to the last vice president, they said, um, if it's not in the back, you don't need it." my guys and, and uh, girls up there say it's lies, lies. There were tests that weren't in the back of the book. And what I'm bringing up is you said barriers and it just, it hit me. That IBC 
I think not having it there is a barrier. And I don't think it's an yeah. imposition to, to have the IBC book there with you. Um, even yeah, well, even if you have it on the computer, if you flip through it and um, the contractors test, they figured out how like you can't cheat and, and stuff like that. All these testing centers are, are, are pretty good. You know, they look through the book and all that. Um, but it, it was just another thought about removing barriers is, is you do look in that book. Why can't it be with you? You know, um, I don't know how many of the questions that relate to it, but I, I just heard a lot of people, I got it yelled at the last time I had NCARB. They're like, no, they're lying to you. They do have specific stuff and they don't let you take the book on there. I'm like, all right. I'll well, we, yeah, we don't, we don't let them take any test material in there. If the way it's supposed but to be. But that might be a barrier. Well, but if there's research that research materials needed, it is on the computer. You can go in on the, the screen and do it. Um, I'd have to look at the specific questions, you know, of what they're saying, but I, I'm not going to say that there isn't the uh, possibility of that. I would, I would wager that maybe they didn't know the section to look at or something because I would also but, agree with that. I actually also agree with you. I'm a very strict person. Uh, my kids probably don't like that. Um, but <laughs> so I actually a hundred percent agree with that, but I'm just thinking about all the different things that they have to cram for all the different things. And it might just be a comfort thing. Like, Hey, I can just go look there quick. I don't have to do the computer. It's just, you, you, inspired me when you're looking for these ways to eliminate barriers. I don't think that that should be a sacred cow. I don't think yeah. that should, you know, that's where I'm getting at. Well, but one thing that, that the practice exams are going to help. Oh uh, yeah. They're going to awesome idea. Those, those questions about what, what's on here, what's not on here, what material do I need? Because the, the reason you say, why can't we take a, you know, a book into the test center and have them look at it. You know, we do online proctoring now. Uh, so you yeah. can take the exam in an office. You can take it in your home. And that is why we have to have everything equal. So that is where, you know, we, we've heard numerous times that we don't have uh, scratch pads. You know, we don't have the, I need a scratch pad to take this test. Well, it's on the computer. And yep. have, it's not that needed, but... <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Um, so but people take tests differently. So I understand that, but, yeah. but the, taking the practice exams will really help them. Yep. Um, great conversation. Uh, excited for, for what the whole NCARB group is doing. Uh, any last things that you want to point people towards or just kind of end it up? I'll let you have the last word. Um, and it was great having you on. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. It's a lot of fun to come on and talk about this because it is important. Important. You know, we're what we're doing at NCARB. Um, you know, the, the last point that hopefully everybody understands now is that come April 25th, I believe is the date, that the rolling clock is really no longer in existence. Back in January, the board of directors, uh, we've been talking about this for a couple of years, but we finally made a decision based on uh, research that we did with our cyclometricians, with our exam committees, things like that. And we have now taken the old five-year rolling clock and it's been replaced with a validity, uh, basically a validity study of what the exam is. And what that means is the content on the current test. So we're uh, ARE 5.0. Yep. 
the psychometricians have said everything back to 4.0 is still valid. So we still meet this level of competency. Mm-hmm. So people that have taken the exam in 4.0 and then have been timed out, they're getting tests basically, um, you know, put back into the queue. And if they've passed them, we've actually, I think there's 10, so far 10 individuals actually will get licensed because parts that they passed that, that had rolled off yeah, are now good. So it's, it's hitting, it's hitting a total of, of I think it's going to affect like 6,000 people. And Amazing. it's something where the five year is really, again, taking down the barriers. It's really opened up the doors and that has gone just from NCARB and you know, the, the, the powers that be talking about, okay, what is it? I mean, I was at a meeting in Tennessee and I had two African American women saying, I can't take the test. I I can't afford it anymore. The rolling clock got me and I'm done. Yep. And you start saying their stories. It's like, it's nothing they did. So stories like that are really cool to hear that we've, we're making a difference with that. So that's something that we're doing. We just keep pushing it. I think, you know, the whole, the whole thing with the MRAs that we're doing, the globalization, being able to open up the, the barriers for a lot of the younger people that want to, you know, maybe travel more. Well, now we've got, we got MRAs with New Zealand and Australia and UK will be in this month, Canada, Mexico. So we're, we're trying to, to continue that on a, you know, more of an international scene uh, because there's a lot of interest with other countries. Absolutely. So, it's very exciting. I mean, it's like I said, it's a very exciting uh, time. And the organization just does an amazing uh, amount of work more than just the exam. Yep. Awesome. Well, thanks for being on. And uh, I hope to talk to you in the future. All right, Alex. Thank you very much for having me.